Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, the view from IFA. The International Fiscal Association held its annual congress in Seoul, Korea, September 2nd through 6th. I, as well as this week's guests, attended, and while we are still working through our jet lag, I thought it would be good to have an update for listeners on what we heard while we were there. Here to talk about the discussions that took place at this year's Congress are Tax Analyst Tax Policy Counsel Robert Goulder and Worldwide Tax Daily Chief Correspondent Stephanie Johnson, who joins us by phone. Bob, welcome to the podcast, and Stephanie, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Dave. Good to be here. To set the scene for listeners, Bob, uh, what is EFA? Well, Dave, EFA is a... Uh established and historic organization uh, in tax. They've been around for a long time. In fact, they were founded way back uh, before World War II in 1938. They were actually celebrating their 80th anniversary this year. And what IFA is essentially, it's a network of about 70 national branches uh, supported by a central secretariat based in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. There's a U.S. branch of which I happen to be a member, full disclosure, uh, and that's based in Rochester, New York. The membership of IFA is very multidisciplinary. It draws heavily from the legal profession, but unlike, say, the ABA tax section, it also draws accountants, economists, public finance experts, lots of uh, academics and so forth. Total membership in IFA is around 13,000. Uh, they have individual members from 114 countries, and their annual Congress is the largest gathering of tax professionals worldwide. What happens? happens at the annual Congress? Well, the highlight of the show is what they call their technical program, which is a series of very highly developed seminars on topics that they select a year or two ahead of time and really pour a lot of effort into thoroughly researching. They refer to it as a scientific program, which is their way of implying that they go about their research in a very disciplined and objective manner, which is to say it's judgmentally neutral. You're not going to hear IFA say, you know, uh, the arm's length standard is good or bad. They avoid blanket characterizations like that. But what they do succeed at is sharing valuable insights on pressing issues. So when it comes to comparative analysis, you know, country by country analysis of these issues, they're, they're pretty much the gold standard. The technical program always consists of two main topics and then a, another 10 separate topics. And they spread this out over the course of the whole week, which allows them to dig pretty deep into the details. So there's a lot of learning going on. The reports compiled by these national branches are all put together in a series of national reports for each of the two main topics, and they're pooled together in a general report. So these are, are published, and they're the type of things that people put on their bookshelf for many years to come. So again, excellent comparative analysis, uh, kind of a, a high point in terms of tax research. What were this year's main topics? Well, the main topics, and as I say, these were selected a couple years back, giving people ample time to uh, prepare all of the research. Uh, the first topic was coordination of domestic GARs. That's a general anti-avoidance rules. There's not a lot of consistency in how these rules work from country to country, although most countries have some type of a GAR. If not statutory, they have it in common law. And the second topic was uh, what can we expect in the future of withholding taxes? There's a lot of people out there who scratch their heads and think, you know, withholding taxes work so well in certain contexts like uh, taxing your salary and wages, your income. They're, they're very effective tools. They have very high compliance rates. 
What if you were to take withholding taxes and extend them to other areas? What if you could apply them, say, to the digital economy or something like that? And and the long and short of it is it's very hard to take withholding taxes and apply them to a context where they're not a natural fit. But there's a lot of research on that with different ideas being kicked around. In addition to the two main topics, there were a, a few common threads that seemed to link many of the discussions. For instance, we keep on talking about the digital economy, and that came up in almost every single panel. People continue to ask whether the international consensus is on the verge of breaking down. So there's plenty of discussions about whether the traditional PE doctrine and the traditional arm's length method and transfer pricing have future viability. And another interesting theme that seemed to come up a lot was whether certain consumption tax tax principles are ever going to have spillover effects for direct taxes like income taxes. And you see a little bit of that with the response to the Wayfair decision, which has nothing to do with taxing income. But people look at the Supreme Court decision and think, hey, this could have implications for taxing the digital economy. Now, Stephanie, you had the uh, challenging task of uh, writing up daily news coverage from EFA. What were your takeaways from this event? So I wrote several stories uh, over the course of the week. I'm just going to focus on a few of them because they all seem to be linked together. Most of them were about the taxation of the digital economy debate, which was a hot topic at uh, the Congress, as Bob had mentioned. My first story about the digital economy was about the second plenary session, which focused on the withholding tax in the era of BEPS collective investment vehicles, and the digital economy, and focus mostly on the comments from Valère Moutalier, who is the Director of Direct Taxation and Tax Coordination at the European Commission. Uh, he had explained the rationale behind the European Commission's proposal to tax digital economy, which came out in March, uh, shortly after the OECD's interim report on the subject came out. Just a quick recap, the Commission is pushing for a long-term significant digital presence concept, which would apply to companies with revenues from the supply of digital services exceeding 7 million euros, more than 100,000 users, or more than 3,000 online business contracts. And while that timeline for that proposal is somewhat loose, since the OECD is leading the debate on the subject on a long-term solution by 2020, the Commission is in the meantime pushing for adoption among EU member states for a short-term digital services tax by the end of the year. So digital services tax, just a reminder, this is a 3% revenue-based tax on specific digital activities carried out by businesses with annual worldwide revenue exceeding 750 million euros and total annual revenue from digital activities in the EU of more than 50 million euros. Moutarier said that, quote, this is not a master thesis. It is a political answer to the issue, unquote, of taxing digital economy. And he said that although the package of measures was not an ideal solution, it came as a result of pressure from the public and other EU institutions, uh, particularly from the European Parliament and the EU Council. Um, he also noted that the upcoming European Parliament elections next spring were a factor in uh, the Commission's decision to issue these proposals. So it was sort of a last call for any new proposals to address the issue to happen. So uh, Moutelier also argued that the digital services tax should not be seen as a withholding tax, and rather it should be uh, seen as a new pan-EU harmonized tax. And... As for the Commission's long-term uh, proposal for a significant digital presence, Moutelier said that it would feed into the OECD-level discussion, but essentially fa focuses on the same issues, you know, countries' uh, right to tax, rethinking nexus criteria, and how to allocate profits to that nexus criteria. And according to him, the significant digital presence proposal should be seen as in the context of the OECD's report on long-term solutions in 2020, as well as the European Commission's 
proposal for a common consolidated corporate tax base, and the commission hopes for some kind of convergence among those three elements by 2021. So what you said was not really breaking news. It's been widely acknowledged that the proposals have been were politically driven. It was still interesting to hear a top-ranking official from the European Commission explain the reasoning behind its proposals. And it's also interesting in the context of the uh, informal ECOFIN, which happened over the weekend of September 7th and 8th, where further discussions on uh, trying to get consensus on the digital services tax took place. And uh, one key element that came out of that was the fact that France is now going to introduce a sunset clause for the DST, which was a big question during the EFA Congress. You know, is the European Commission going to introduce a sunset clause uh, for the short-term solution in order to make way for the long-term solution, whatever that may be? So that was pretty interesting to hear in Seoul. Dave, you know that saying that if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, then it's got to be a duck. It's really interesting here to see Moutelier say this is not a withholding tax because it is a gross basis tax. It is completely unrelated to how much income the entity in question is earning. You could actually be a company that is losing money and still be hit by this tax. So it's blind to the profit uh, that the company is making. But it seems that politically, they have to sell it as a tax in lieu of an income tax. I think the people, uh, the European here, the population in Europe, they have this expectation that the corporate tax is going to hit these firms and their profits. And under the current rules, that's not happening. That's why they need this tax. And he has to go to great lengths to say that, no, it's not a withholding tax, but really that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that, Bob. Uh, That's an astute observation. So following up on that piece, I wrote a story about the IFA slash OECD session on day three of the Congress, which is generally a hotly anticipated panel at these conferences. Since everybody wants to know what the OECD has to say, and the panel featured Pascal Saint-Amand, director of the OECD Center for Tax Policy Administration, who has seemed to be a fixture on these particular panels in past Congresses. The panel also featured David Bradbury, head of the CTPA's Tax Policy and Statistics Division. So I found this panel particularly interesting because it was, uh, to my knowledge, the first time the OECD had given a sneak peek into the latest discussions within the task force on the digital economy, which is leading the OECD's work on the issue. Um, And the task force recently had a meeting in July, which I believe was the first meeting since the March release of the interim report on the tax challenges arising from digitalization. It hasn't been easy to get information about the task force's discussions, so I was paying extra attention to this session. And during the panel, Bradbury said that the key development in that the OECD is seeing right now is the willingness of the U.S. to proactively take part in the debate. So specifically, the U.S. has been increasingly focused on reforms that might include a greater focus on marketing intangibles or other ways to ensure that more profits are allocated to the market jurisdiction, but is really leaning towards something much more modest than anything like a destination-based cash flow tax. So sorry, DPCS. CFT nerds. Um, the United Kingdom has also indicated that it would like to explore how user contribution can be better reflected in existing tax rules through possible changes through both permanent establishment and transfer pricing, according to Bradbury. And another interesting thing on the panel, uh, we're still seeing the ripple effects of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which Bradbury said has been causing uh, several countries to consider whether there should be some discussion about minimum effective taxation. And so that was interesting because now we're hearing that Germany is one of those countries that is looking to resurrect their debate on minimum effective taxation at the latest informal ECOFIN meeting, which is the Economic and Financial Affairs Council. The German finance minister, Olaf Schulz, so is said to have asked his counterpart 
to push the debate to the international level. Just for con- some context, the EU had started discussing minimum effective taxation as a way to address space erosion starting in 2015, but that debate has sort of stalled over the years. And now Germany and apparently Finland are now in favor of rebooting those discussions and taking it to the international level. So look for our EU correspondent, Elodie Lemaire's coverage of the informal ECOFIN for more details in Worldwide Tax Daily. And something else that came out of the EFA OECD panel, uh, there was a discussion about whether the arm's length principle is fit for purpose given the United States' apparent vote of no confidence in the standard with the BEAT under the TCGA. And the panel also featured Akhilesh Ranjan, India's chief commissioner of income tax international, who said that the standard pretty much baked down in the context of taxing digitalization. So it was, in his view, necessary to move toward a broader concept of nexus and move toward profit allocation rules that are free of the ALP. And to that, you know, Pascal St. Amand said that uh, the OECD is agnostic uh, on the arm's length principle and said that because of the U.S.'s apparent view that there is a problem with the current transfer pricing rules, that that will have a major effect on the debate on, on long-term solutions to tax digital economy. And he compared it to an earthquake that no one understands is really happening. So we can probably expect a shakeup in the way we think about the international tax rules in the near future. So, Bob, should all this be read together as uh, maybe the beginning of the end of the arm's length standard as we know it? Quite possibly. I like the uh, the earthquake analogy. It, it's remarkable to me how much things have changed. Here we have Pascal Sanamon saying that the OECD is agnostic towards the arm's length standard. That is in stark contrast to the way things have always been. There's a real departure from the orthodoxy here. I remember going to IFA congresses not long ago where the OECD was the vanguard, the great protectorate of the arm's length standard and the PE doctrine. This is in, this is foundationally in the OECD model tax convention. It's in the OECD transfer pricing guidelines. If you look at uh, the U.S. sphere, you've got cases like uh, Altera and Medtronics where the multinational corporations are going in and say, yes, this is the arm's length standard. These are the rules we all have to live by. And now Pascal is saying that the organization is agnostic. Reading between the lines, he seems to be saying, look, they're just about building consensus among their stakeholders and trying to avoid double taxation uh, and avoid internal consistencies and, and confusion for taxpayers. And that's quite different than saying this is the orthodoxy. You have to abide by this. The other thing that struck me is there was some discussion of this way to look at the relationship between Article 5 and Article 7 of the OECD model. When I went to law school or the LLM program, they ingrained this in you. I mean, this should be hardwired into your brain. First, you have Article 5 analysis. Is there a permanent establishment? If and only if the answer is yes, there's a permanent establishment, then do you move on to Article 7 where you allocate profits to the the competing taxing jurisdictions? And what Pascal seems to suggest, and I don't mean to pin this on him personally, this is sort of just a general movement in terms of how the tax community is thinking. It's that you should invert that order. You should flip it. Because what is the point of finding a PE if you don't have profits to allocate to it? It becomes sort of a waste of time, a fruitless enterprise. They're saying maybe you you flip that. You think about how you want to allocate profits and which jurisdictions have taxing rights. And then the second step becomes, well, does that jurisdiction have a PE? And if they don't under the current rules, then maybe you need a different definition of what a PE is, which is where you get into this proposal for the long-term solution, the significant digital presence. And flipping that sequence of between um, analyzing Article 5 and then Article 7, that is kind of revolutionary stuff. It's a exact opposite of, of how I was raised and brought up to understand all these issues. So yes, I, I like the earthquake analogy. 
And more to the point on whether or not there is a PE, uh, you mentioned earlier that the Wayfair decision kept coming up, which seemed to be often brought up in the context of the U.S. Supreme Court has kind of come to the same conclusion uh, regarding, you know, taxable nexus, uh, at least in the consumption tax realm, that a lot of international experts are talking about need to be applied in the income tax realm. Is that how you saw that? Absolutely. This was remarkable. There was one panel at Oliva that focused on consumption taxes. And I think that was probably the panel where the Wayfair decision came up the least. What we saw before our own eyes was panel after panel on direct taxation of multinational corporations where the Wayfair decision comes up. And the language in that opinion is very strong. You have the justices of the Supreme Court saying that it's ridiculous in this day and age to have a physical presence standard for establishing the jurisdictional taxing rights. That makes no sense. They liken that standard to a gateway to tax evasion. They liken that standard to you know the best friend of people who want to not pay taxes. How can we backtrack from it now in any context? Once the Supreme Court has basically revealed it to be a, a failed concept. And the breakdown is very interesting. People on the business side are very quick to say, whoa, hold on. That is only for VAT and GST or at, technically not even for that, for, for retail sales taxes because we don't have a VAT. But really saying that's only for consumption taxes. Don't you dare take that concept and try to apply it to income taxes. You know, we don't even want a server farm to be uh, a PE because it doesn't have human beings there servicing it. Um, But I don't know how you're going to avoid the spillover effect because the academics are already there. You know, if you look at some of the writings from people like Ruben Aviona or Ruth Mason, it's clear, you know, the genie has been let out of the bottle and I don't know how you're going to put it back in. Bob, picking up on your uh, brief mention of the consumption taxes panel, I did also cover uh, that panel, which was the last panel of the IFA Congress. And as Pete Batio, the head of the consumption tax unit of the OECD, said, you know, they saved the best of last. And in many ways, I thought they did. So while most of the attention during the IFA Congress was on direct tax, particularly corporate tax issues, the organizers focused the session on recent international VAT, GST issues from the perspective of basic principles included the OECD VAT, GST guidelines, which is probably the longest title that's uh, on the schedule. So the session featured Pete Batio, as I mentioned, and you know people describe him as the father of the OECD VAT, GST guidelines, which pretty much all countries are using when designing and amending their own indirect tax systems. So he's kind of a big deal. And what I thought was most newsworthy was the fact that the OECD is now working on reaching consensus on options for enlisting digital marketplaces like Amazon and eBay to help with the VAT and GST collection process when it comes to online trade. You may have already have heard about how some countries are trying to deal with VAT and GST compliance but with the influx of millions of packages that are ordered online from other countries. You know, the sheer amount of packages that are crossing borders have led countries to approach the OECD asking for ways to make platforms like Amazon somehow responsible for helping collect uh, tax on these packages. And as you may have also heard, there's rampant uh, tax evasion associated with this online trade, uh, particularly from China, Chinese sellers uh, selling, say, into countries like the UK. And that's a huge problem over there. 
So, you know, to, to combat this problem, countries have been introducing their own rules. So, for example, the UK recently introduced joint and several liability rules to make online marketplaces responsible for any VAT that businesses operating on their platforms fail to charge on sales to British customers. And most recently, the UK also created a voluntary agreement with online marketplaces to enhance VAT compliance. And under this agreement, marketplaces will, among other things, provide HMRC with data on requests about the businesses that operate on their sites and sell to UK customers. And already we've seen Amazon's European arm and uh, eBay's European arm uh, sign on to this agreement. And other small websites like Frugo.com, Wolf and Badger, Etsy Ireland and ASOS, as well as Flubit, which I have never heard about. Uh, apparently, it's a major UK independent marketplace. All of those guys are joining the list, but Alibaba, which is a giant in Chinese online uh, online sales, is conspicuously absent. So we're still waiting to hear whether they will join. At any rate, now the OCD is stepping in and finalizing work on agreed approaches that countries could take to recruit platforms to help with the VAT and GST collection process. And, and Batia said that the OECD will present the final outcome at the organization's uh, March 2019 meeting uh, at the Global Forum on VAT in Melbourne. And so that's going to be a big deal to watch. So I think indirect tax is sort of a dark horse in the international tax discourse. Most of the conversation at EFA Congress and in, in mostly other arenas, they seem to focus mostly on corporate income tax. But you know, you know VAT and GST accounts for a far greater share of tax revenues across countries, especially in the OECD. And I just looked up a few stats here. The OECD's Global Revenue Statistics Database uh, has shown that VAT accounts for an average of 20% of all tax revenues in the OECD in 2015. And while other goods and services taxes accounted for 12.4%. And that's really huge compared to the paltry 8.9% in corporate income tax that was collected. So indirect tax is definitely a space to watch, especially, particularly when it comes to the taxation of digital economy. And I'm sure, I'm sure Bob, you have some, some thoughts about this because you are, you're a massive VAT fan. That's correct, Stephanie. I find VAT a fascinating practice area, in part because we don't have one here in the United States, yet you see it in, in all these other countries. There must be something about it that's appealing. And it, it's a very efficient tax. It raises a boatload of revenue for the state, and that's not an efficient matter. It has pro-growth attributes. The problem is it's a regressive tax. What is going to be interesting about the OECD's work here is what kind of a proposal are they going to come up for these platforms? Because if you back up for a second, the platform should not even be in the VAT system. They have no liability. They're not the buyer. They're not the seller. They're not in the chain of production or distribution. They're basically a matchmaker. They're finding a seller, finding a buyer, and helping to bring them together through their digital platform. Really, there should be no VAT liability there. But you understand for the reasons Stephanie mentioned in her story, and she laid them out very nicely there, it's too big an area for governments to just ignore and just to say, we're going to let this go. Somehow, these platforms have to be brought into the compliance process. So do they do that through information reporting? Do they say, get information on every transaction and send it to the tax administrators? Or are you actually going to impose some type of joint and several liability? Because you know how that's going to work out. You don't have to be a genius to figure out that uh, if you're the government and you have a choice between going after some platform like Amazon or eBay, which has lots of money and you know where to find them and you know how to audit them, or are you going to chase down individual sellers and say, hey, pay your VAT? You're clearly tax collectors are going to go after the platforms. So when you make them jointly and severally liable, you're really making them primarily liable. And there's going to be big consequences to that. Excellent. For more detail on what we talked about today, listeners should check out the EFA coverage in Worldwide Tax Daily and Tax Notes International. 
We'll be posting links in the show notes. Bob, where can listeners find you online? They can find me uh, through Twitter. That's uh, at Robert Goulder. Last name is spelled G-O-U-L-D-E-R. And Stephanie, you? You can find me on Twitter as well at Song Johnston, S-O-O-N-G-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And now, coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by executive editor for commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In state tax notes, authors from several organizations identify and examine six noteworthy property tax trends in 2017 and 2018. Also, Richard Cram responds to a recent magazine article arguing that Public Law 86-272 implicitly preempts states' ability to impose net income tax on a cloud computing service provider's income if the provider has no in-state business activities. In Tax Notes International, practitioners from KPMG examine changes in the transfer pricing environment in both the United States and internationally to determine how these changes affect taxpayers' desire to pursue an advanced pricing agreement in the United States. Also, practitioners from Evershed Sutherland explain how to calculate the amounts needed to compute U.S. tax liability resulting from Section 965 using the worksheets provided in Publication 5292, focusing on the Section 965C deduction and the disallowed foreign credits. You can read all that and a lot more in the September 24th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play to make sure you get the next episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.